1: talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными Ваш ведущий Олиар.
0: I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show from Restitution. Catherine Mulhern is here. I'd like to thank my friend and Prevail contributor. Moscow Never Sleeps, for introducing me to restitution and to Catherine. These guys do really great and interesting work. I'm going to read from the website here, okay? Our work, the website says, can be crystallized as turning the tools of the city and of capitalism against bad actors to clean up the system for the greater social good. Capitalized city means city of London because they're based there. So what these guys do is when there's money that's stolen, okay, from sovereign nations, let's say. Maybe the dictator absconds with some cash. Maybe there's a finance minister that's just boosting money out of the, out of the treasury. And then it goes into this pit, you know, where the shell corporations and there's numbered bank accounts here and all this kind of stuff. How do they get the money back? How does a poor country that's been robbed get the money back? Well, restitution has solved some of that problem. You engage restitution, this organization, and they chase after the money. They know how to do it. They have great lawyers and litigators. They have working relationships with people. And the cool thing about it is they get a cut of the money that is returned. So this is capitalism-based, right? If they do their job well, they get paid. If they don't get the money back, they mm, tough luck, right? So it's kind of a win-win thing. The country or whoever hires them makes out, they make out, uh, and the criminal loses. So it's really kind of a wonderful thing. It kind of blew my mind when I was wrapping my brain around this and how it works. So we talk about that in the interview with Catherine. She's had a pretty interesting career, I think. Um, She spent a lot of time in the Gambia and was there in the Gambia during the transition from when the dictator of that country left to when um, the Democratic elected government came in. And this happened peacefully there for a variety of reasons, which she gets into. So... She is, uh, you know, she was there watching something very historical happen, which, uh, which is cool. So we talk about that. We talk about restitution. We talk about um, dark, you know, the, the stolen money and stuff like that and, and all things of that nature. Fascinating interview. Excited to share that with you. And again, thank you to my friend Moscow Never Sleeps who set this up, um, who was actually on the call, although he uncharacteristically did not say anything. So we're going to get to that in a minute. Before we do what a week this has been huh i mean heading into the holidays we could do worse as weeks go right i mean when i started covering all this stuff this trump russia cr- criminals in the government uh, all of it right i did it i started five years ago and focusing initially just on the russian contacts with the trump uh, organization and, and the trump people um I was basically on Twitter. Yeah, I'd write stuff on Twitter. I'd point things out on Twitter. And I was very, very confident. I would say things like, uh, you're going to jail. Or "I scow? I used the word who a lot. It used to amuse people because I would say, he's going to the who I said things like, I can't wait for the feds to come for Sean Hannity. You know, I said things like that. Thinking, you know, not, not to spread bad information, not to inspire false hope. Not because I knew anything. I didn't know anything. I just knew what I saw. And what I saw was people egregiously breaking the law. Not just any laws. This is national security shit was at risk here because this career criminal who was being boosted by our longtime enemy was now in charge and and enriching his cronies. And there was this network of people around him who were all benefiting and everybody else was going to get fucked over. And I saw this and I, I thought it was horrible. And I thought this is the United States. When the government, when the Department of Justice finds out, when people, when we the people find out the extent of these crimes, we are going to demand that these motherfuckers go to jail. Because that's what happens in this country. You break the law, especially big laws, there's consequences. You go to prison. That's what happens, right? So when I said things like that, I was confident because I thought, my God, I had belief in America. I had belief and faith that uh, justice would prevail, right? Right? And as the years went on, I I stopped with those kind of pronouncements. I I, I got much more careful. I got much more diligent. I got more journalistic. I became a journalist, basically. Or at least more journalistically minded. I tried to be, you know, fairer and and less emotional in the stuff that I was writing about. You know, just stick to the facts. The facts are damning enough. They can be framed in a certain way, but they're damning enough. But I got to tell you... This last week or so, since this wonderful January 6th commission, which by the way, I was always in favor of, I want to say I always wanted it to happen because I thought that even though it lacked maybe the teeth that um, a special counsel would have, it still could put attention on this horrible thing that happened to our country. It's the worst attack on democracy since Booth shot Lincoln. Nobody's done a damn thing about it, really. It's just been this jumbled mess. And now, because of congress doing this thing because of nancy pelosi and liz cheney and, the, and adam schiff and benny thompson and the other people on this committee were having to look at what happened for real and the people this week now we know with these text messages and this mark meadows business we know shit was up bad things were happening there was absolutely coordination between the fox news people right sending texts to mark meadows don jr all of this stuff these people were all in coordination um You know, you go read the reporting from uh, Hugo Lowell at The Guardian, you'll see, you know, things were coordinated. This was a fucking coup attempt that failed. That's what happened. And I think it's slowly dawning on the American people, right? The the severity of what happened. And people haven't even testified yet. (laughs) Wait until some of these motherfuckers testify. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be interesting to see what Fox does about it. So this week, as we head into the holidays... I have a little smile on my face, I have to say, because I think, once again, maybe the people that did the crimes actually will go to the Hooskow. Maybe they will. You know, I can't say for sure, because God knows, you know, people get away with shit all the time, especially rich people, especially rich white people. But for the first time in a long time, I feel hope that the bad guys are going to get what's coming to them. I do. (laughs) Let's hope so. So... One programming note I'm taking next week off Next Friday is Christmas Eve Which is also the day Before my son's birthday So I'm not working next week I'm not even going to run Anything in the feed I I think that uh, You know Everybody should enjoy The holiday Whether or not You are Christian Or celebrate Christmas It is a federal holiday All the shit's closed You know Enjoy the day off uh, Is what I say Uh, (laughs) So you know I'm going to enjoy My day off And I hope that Everybody does as well And has nice holidays I will be back on this show on the following friday new year's eve december 31st with a very special edition of the prevail podcast it's going to be lit as the kids say i encourage you to download that it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun so speaking of uh bad guys getting what's coming to them restitution catherine mulhern she makes the bad guys pay so we're going to be right back with catherine mulhern
1: Fixing to overthrow the government, do you find the suite of applications like WhatsApp too clunky for your purposes? Hi, I'm Lauren Bobert, here to tell you about a new app that lets you coordinate all your seditious activities right from your burner phone. With Kuwait, you can send out invites, issue real-time orders, broadcast the movements of the House Speaker, and blame the whole thing on Black Lives Matter. But don't just take my word for it. Here's
0: Alex Jones of InfoWars. On January 6th, our attempt to stop the steal failed, mostly because of poor coordination. If we had Kuwait, Donald Trump would still be in the White House where he belongs, and I would not have to plead the fifth and stop talking.
1: And Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows.
0: I wish we used KuVite instead of PowerPoint.
1: KuVite. That's C-O-U-P-V-I-T-E. Use promo code Reason. That's T for Trump and then reason to get 10% off your first
0: purchase. right with KuVite. Now back to the show. Catherine Mulhern, welcome to the Prevail podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation, Greg. I appreciate it very much.
0: I'm excited to talk to you. Um, Let's get right to it. The the organization is called Restitution. So tell us a little bit about it. What is it? When was it formed? What are the goals? Let's just start there.
1: Sure. So Restitution is an impact litigation fund, which has a very particular focus and works with very particular clients. So the type of work that we do is with post-conflict newly democratic, uh, transparency-minded governments, mostly in the global south. And we work with them to go after the assets that have been uh, stolen uh, or historically lost. Often, this is generational wealth that has disappeared from the country. And we use civil enforcement and asset recovery tools to work with them to bring those assets back. So, for example, in the context, say, of... um, A newly democratic government in the Middle East. There are a couple that we can think of. Often there's between between 10 and 20 billion that has been stolen. Some of it over generations. We would work with that government to get it back and use it in such a way that it's protected from re corruption and um, used in a transparent and accountable way. So we're an impact litigation fund.
0: Two. It's two pronged, as I see it. Because first of all, you have to find the money. And seize it, and and, and do the uh, the legal uh, stuff involved with that, and then also you have to make sure that it's once it's given back, it's given back in such a way that it isn't immediately uh, looted again, right? Which is also, um, I think, a challenge, as I understand it.
1: Yeah, yes and no. I mean, a lot of the governments that we work with, because of our the way that we structure what we provide, the governments know up front that this is our focus. So, and because we work as an impact litigation funder, what we do is we make sure the vast majority of the assets that we are able to recover return to the government. But in exchange for that, and litigation funders have been extremely successful at all kinds of things. I mean, we can think about a variety of things, including corporate cases, but also divorce cases and others they are very good at getting money back and assets back, but it's very expensive money. But because we work with a certain type of investor, what that means is those investors, although they do well, that they'll get a good return in terms of um, our funds, the vast majority of the assets are returned to the government. So it's a very good deal for the government, but in exchange for which, because we are an impact investor and they need to make sure with us in line with our national priorities that that money is used for education. It can be used for health. Often it can be used because from a macro, macro perspective, these governments are, are looking at massive debt overhangs. It could be used to repay debt or restructure debt, but for them, because often these countries have um, very idealistic governments, they have um, anti-corruption commissioners in place who are quite serious about their jobs, this becomes an easier conversation than you you might necessarily think. Okay. Um, that's and good. really, yeah. yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, no, that's good to know, because I, I, yeah. I've i read books and articles about how sometimes that's a problem where the money is, is seized and then it goes back to the government and then there's a new... Uh, you know, a, a new iteration of corrupt people that just boosted all over again. So it's, it's good that you guys have figured this out. Now, I, I, I don't know, I'm not a lawyer and I don't even pretend to be one at all. I know nothing about this. So when you say impact litigation, is that, is that an industry term? Like, what does that mean exactly? mean, I, I know what it means figuratively, but it, what does that mean?
1: So, um, I- impact funds essentially have almost a double bottom line. So they're interested in profit, obviously, because it's private sector, but they're also interested in making the world a better place, okay. not to put too fine a point on it. So what we do is is we do that. So we're a litigation funder. Um, also, uh, we can purchase assets. Claims are an asset. So, and that's the other piece of the puzzle for us. So these. Claims are essentially uh, deeply discounted assets like an oil and gas or a mining find. And so what we do is we work with these governments and say, these claims have a value. We put those claims into a fund, the governments and the investors invest side by side and go after these assets together. So, um, and Mm. interestingly, the, the investigators who work with us, we have investigators and lawyers who've been doing this for years. And what they're finding, although obviously it's still a challenge, because people haven't had historically these assets recovered before, it's easier than some of the corporate corporate investigations that that historically have taken place and other litigation funders have been doing. So, although you know, it's still difficult, it's not at the same level of difficulty.
0: So, so people invest in this. So, so is that how? Are you not for profit, or is it like people invest in it? T- talk a little bit about that, because I'm just trying. I want to really wrap my brain around it because this is really cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so it, it is for profit but it's a, it's an impact for profit. So you will yeah. see this in the context of you know that there are foundations who do this, who they make where they make a little bit of profit, they may also donate a bit of money as well. There are um, impact investors out there and also ESG investors. So it's environmental, social and governance. And ESG investors are looking for ways to put their money to work but also do good in the world. And essentially what we do is not only do we work with these governments who are in many ways outmanned and outgunned and a lot of the history for all of us. So I'm one of seven founders, the CEO of restitution. But uh, the work that I've done in the past have been with governments, newly democratic governments who have found money but haven't been able to get it because these defendants who are incredibly well funded by the money that they stole will go after these governments to Try to dissuade them, whether it's uh, strike suits, corporate sabotage. I mean, I've, I've had phone calls where people have said people are trying to burn down buildings to get rid of uh, of evidence of uh, wrongdoing. So, those are the sorts of things that we've really, as restitution, have said we can help with. We can get the best lawyers, the best investigators, and these investors who are incredibly sophisticated and just utilize these tools to go after these bad guys.
0: I think this is really great. I think it's really smart to, to have a bit, you know. I. I know that people are really woo-woo about not for profits and stuff but I think I think having a profit motive is really just a genius idea. So I think this is really brilliant and um, you know for what it's worth we're, we're not opposed to things that are for profit on this podcast. We're not about like great leaps forward here. You know we we we're we're, we're, <laughs> we're good with it. Anyway, you mentioned and it's the next question on my list so you you've segued nicely into it your background which I think is really interesting. So I want I want you to talk a little bit about how you got to be where you are now. And uh, particularly, I want to ask about your experience in the Gambia, um, overseeing the, the transition uh, into a, a democracy there, which I think, as I understand, it really does inform your worldview. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to. So um, when I was a Kids, sort of pre-law, I did a master's degree in development, was recruited just by accident to to work in South Africa, and ended up working with a precursor to the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It really was sort of a headbanger there, so taking witness statements and and working with people in the community. And what we were finding is really that the level of political violence would go up to the extent that there was money sort of coming in from various places, whether it was, you know, other um, from other countries. But this sort of illegal money, once you saw illegal money come into these places, often the level of of heat would go up in these communities. So that's really where that sort of interest in terms of looking at uh, legal money and, and its impacts on state fragility started. And then I was a a lawyer in private practice. I was a law firm partner in in London for many years, working in um, what's termed emerging and frontier markets. So again, working with governments, often newly democratic, often um, uh, in places like the Middle East and the CIS, where they were looking at ways to bring money and to pay essentially for all of the things that they had promised their people and looking at assets and how do they sell assets and, and how does it work in a way that's transparent and accountable. I was um, on the board of a, an organization called the Institute for Human Rights and Development in Africa and was asked and, and agreed or really volunteered to go and work with the Institute um, in the last couple of years before the changeover. And IHRDA was based in the, is and still is based in the Gambia and is doing very well. IHRDA um, was focused on the African Commission, which was based in the Gambia as well. But it was going through, as every human rights NGO was going through, um, a difficult time because it was the tail end of the Yaya-Jame regime. And Jame was becoming very focused on not only the Institute, but other human rights organizations and giving them a hard time. So really lived through with with the people on the ground there, what that meant, but also got to know um, the opposition, which then became the government and worked with the government as part of um, another NGO that I was running, really looking at, at what we termed loosely, the architecture of corruption, which had developed over 20 years or so. And this is not just the Gambia, the other work that I was doing with other countries indicated that this architecture could be incredibly well developed. What we were finding is we could get um, investigators to look and actually find where assets have been sequestered, but it was extremely difficult to get them back because often governments could bring uh, criminal enforcement proceedings, but civil was extremely expensive. And every time a government tried to bring civil enforcement, as I I mentioned, they would be hit with um, all kinds of things, strike suits, vexatious arbitration. And we saw this not only in the Gambia, but but just about everywhere where you had a government that was newly democratic or post-conflict would look at its treasury and say, we have nothing here, would then get investigators to go look for this money, could find the money. But found it very, very difficult to go after it for a variety of reasons, not least of which they had to spend money on things like, you know, paying civil servants or teachers and and really couldn't put the resources uh, in place to actually do this in such a way that they could bring it back. So, uh, so that's really where restitution started. And we're made up of not only lawyers and investigators, but we also have um, civil society folks, human rights specialists, and development specialists, because we really look at everything holistically from the investigations through to enforcement, through to the asset recovery and return. We also work with governments and we provide them with support, including capacity building. So we have a, a not-for-profit and an NGO element to the work that we do as well.
0: So I want to I want to stick with the Gambia for a minute, because I think this is interesting. Sure. this is a country most people in the United States couldn't find on a map. I can I sort of know where it is and I'm really good with geography. Right. And you have a government there and Yaya. Is it Jama? How does he say his last name?
1: Yaya Jammeh. Yeah,
0: Jammeh, um, you know, he's there for a long time. Over the course of time, he you know consolidates power and does the usual dictatorial stuff like what Trump is, you know, was trying to do here. And um, like, you know, boosts money out of the country, is accused of, of raping underage girl, like all of it, all, all of the stuff that these people do that this guy has been guilty of. And then they have an election and they elect a new president. And it, it, it seems to be it, it, it worked. I mean, the new government, you know, came in. So um, how did that happen? How, how did this guy, how did they get rid of this guy without it spiraling into horror? because I don't remember reading about it. It's, was it you, it was because you were there? Is that it? No, <laughs> or... <laughs> no not
1: at all. Um, no, it was amazing. I mean, I, um, so, and um, when many of my colleagues who lived through it was amazing. It really was very much at the street level. So you know, people were went out in peaceful protest. Then he, um, there were calls from ECOWAS. So there were various phone calls that were made by other presidents and also um, you know, and ECOWAS itself saying, you really have to go. There were protests on the streets. He then, Jame then tried to incite you know, um, violent reaction and everybody stayed home actually. So there were peaceful protests. Everyone said, okay, he's trying to incite us. So everyone pulled back and they went home and they stayed out of the, the, uh, the streets. And there were, there were all kinds of uh, soldiers on the streets. And then at a certain point, it's like he he agreed that he would leave Then he wasn't going to leave. But at a certain point, all of this pressure came to bear and he left and he left um, in. a. And I have I have people who said they watched the airplane go and they waved the airplane goodbye. <laughs> And, um, you know, he took all his stuff, and we've seen the same thing happen in, in other contexts as well. He took suitcases of money. And we saw that when we were working on that. So there was a lot of money that was drained from the country. and he took his cars and we drove them onto the airplane, and he left. But he left. and that was the, the people they just decided, this is, this is over now. It was extraordinary. It really was.
0: Well, lucky for yeah. Gambia that there's no Gambian Tucker Carlson or Gambian Fox News, because he'd still be there if there was. I think, you know, maybe that has something to do with it. Um, yeah, that must have been a <laughs> I <amazing. couldn't> comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we talk about fighting corruption, right? What, what does corruption mean, like, in practical terms? How would you define it?
1: Oh, God. I mean, there, there are so many different ways to do it, but in many ways, that there are different industries. And everyone can say that there are patterns that start to develop. So um, you can take an example. So there will be an oil and gas or a mining license that will um, be paid for, maybe not paid for in the context of doing something you know, like an open tender. So typically, if you're going to sell an oil and gas license anywhere, in anywhere, actually, it could be the global south, the global north, what you do is you do an open tender and everybody rocks up and they, they make their offers. If you're looking for corruption, often what will happen is that license won't be sold that way, it will be sold through some sort of side deal. And a, usually an expert can say it was deeply discounted it will be sold into a, a sort of shell company that has several beneficial owners. And then if you start tracing it, that beneficial owner will typically have some sort of relationship with someone. It doesn't necessarily have to be the government. It could also be um, you know, a, a company, a shady, a shady company as well they will then flip the license to somebody else. So there'll be several sort of passes of that license. And so those sorts of patterns you really look for in terms of of corruption. But that's just one example. And there are several ways in several industries that you can see this sort of um, pattern emerge. And that's what um, investigators, big data people, and forensic accountants are good at picking up, is those sorts of patterns. And the interesting thing about it, if you think about it, if you are committing these sorts of acts, you're not getting the best advice in the world, because you're probably speaking to buddies of yours who've done it, or maybe you have one accountant that everybody goes to, sort of winks and nods at it. And that's the other Piece of the puzzle for us, and one of the reasons why um, these governments are interested in us is that we we look at everybody, all right? So we'll look at what um, the, the term is: advisor enablers, mm. as well, which are the you know the the maybe the accounting firm or the the advisor or the consultant who who people go to to do this sort of work. But what we see is patterns. So one big data. Group who we work with quite a bit has has said this that if you went to four or five square blocks in Miami and you took all of those apartment buildings, you would probably get most of the wealth of, of the generals in Venezuela. So, and they all structure it the same. They're all next to each other. So these patterns start to emerge. And then once you start seeing the patterns, then you can say, I've got a red flag there. This is something worth investigating. And then from there you you build out your litigation. Um, strategy and you enforce and these litigators are, are excellent on it. We use the best in the business.
0: It's interesting. I mean, the, 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 the corruption example that you describe happens on a, just on a micro level, even in, in New York City. I mean, I used to write years ago, I used to uh, be a freelance writer for a real estate trade magazine and every year I would write an article about, you know, how to do bidding, how boards of, of these co-ops would bid on certain jobs like the roof or the elevator or whatever the landscaping. And inevitably there's always somebody's cousin comes in with the, you know, the higher bid, but they get the job anyway. It's, 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 this stuff is, it's, it probably happened in, in in ancient, in Rome and in, you know, in Persia or whatever. And it's, it's, it, it it happens still. Um, But I think you make a point about the enablers and this is a good one. I, I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago for Dame Magazine, just trying to, just trying to identify what the problem is globally with, with everything. Right. And, and I, I think one of the biggest problems isn't even necessarily the guys like uh, what's his name, Jama, who's stealing money and, and and trying to leave the country. It's the people that are helping him. It's the, you know, the accountant, the shady accountants and the attorneys and the uh, the real estate people, somebody selling those, you, you referenced the, the, uh, the buildings in Miami, well, somebody's selling them to these shady people, right? Somebody's Donald Trumping it down there. And those are the people, because this is a multi-billion dollar operation, with all these enablers have, have made this industry out of helping these people. And there's a lot more of them than there are rich dictators, I think, you know, that are crony corrupt dictators. So, you know.
1: And for us as well, I mean, this is, this is a really important piece of the puzzle, right? So we, this is a business and, and we talked a little bit before about the private sector and, and the private sector being important. And I, I actually when early on in this process when we were pulling the, the first pieces of the puzzle together for restitution, I sat with one of the, the um, diplomats who we were talking to is now um, the, the government, the country has become a big supporter. So a global North dip- diplomat. And he said, this is using the tools of capitalism to, to pr- protect the weak we or the weaker and to go after the bad guys. I mean that was his catchphrase and really in a sense for us something that we're quite focused on is is we go after people without fear or favor. So if it is a you know even a large firm or, or a, a you know a large accounting firm, this is something where we're very much of the view that that everybody gets thrown into the pot and um, and you'll be hearing from us and I think as a result that that creates, the G to a certain extent, the ESG, which is the governance piece, which and for many of these donor governance is really interested because they interesting for them because they want to drive governance. So um, by doing that and saying, you know, guys, not only are we going to put the right regulations in and try to create more transparency and have whistleblowers, we're actually going to make these guys pay. That's going to have a very big impact.
0: Yeah, because they all they most of these criminals they just care about the money. That's basically all they care about. That's if we know one thing about the global mob, certainly it's it hit them in the pocketbook. And do you think there's a correlation between successful successful democracies and and you know openness and transparency and good governance? Maybe that's a dumb question. I don't know, but I I feel like what you're doing, the work that's getting done here, is really vital to the success of democracy on a global scale. And the better that that um, you know the the financial structures work in these governments, the more successful they're going to be in the long term.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and that, again, it's part of the the sort of conversations that we're having with donors as well. So that the focus on democracy and strengthening democracy, because if you think about it, if you're a minister of finance sitting in a newly democratic country. Um, the question that you're going to get asked is: We have to pay for education. We have to pay for healthcare. We have to pay for um, making sure that that the trains run. And if the plumbing has been ripped out by the, the regime before us, we're going to be put under tremendous pressure. And uh, not only that, but we've also got this overlay of debt, I and mean, there's a massive amount of debt um, that's that's sitting in the globe, not only in the global north, but in the global south as well. And a lot of that debt in the global South is Chinese debt. And there are a lot of these assets that are uh, being taken because that people are and countries are defaulting on this debt. So paying that debt back, getting people out of hawk is going to be extremely important. And the faster that we can do that for these newly democratic countries and also for older democracies as well, providing them with that stability and that cushion, that financial cushion is going to be really important. So, um, yeah, we've seen this very much. And it's something that, that again, our donors are, are really quite focused on. They see the macro piece of this.
0: Are there any countries in particular that you see as being in flux right now that might go one way or the other? I mean, what, where, where should we be focusing our attention to people just sort of casually paying attention to this topic?
1: Oh, wow. I mean, that there are... I- it's really interesting question. I mean there are several countries and Africa is very interesting because in many ways it's really moving in the right direction. Um, you've got new governments coming in there's there's a, almost a new generation of, of people, not only governments but young people and others who are becoming democratically engaged but then in other instances you're, you're seeing a significant, um, so, sort of pushback. So, Sudan is a very good example mm-hmm. where where you had a government in transition and it seems there's a question mark there in terms of the, the relationship with the military. Um, Ethiopia, with a, essentially what's become a civil war in Ethiopia, is certainly something where you're seeing a significant step back in terms of stability and also um, democracy. So all of those countries and Afghanistan, oh, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. that's going to become a regional crisis point. We're heading into um, not only uh, potentially the, a civil war, but also a famine. So all of those things are uh, things that uh, don't necessarily bode well. But on, then on the flip side, you do see governments who are coming in who are you know, newly democratic, very focused, very transparency minded. And quite a few of our clients are like them, that and saying enough is enough. We, we need to fix this. We, we can't afford it. And COVID, I think, has really driven that too, that nobody has any money anymore.
0: So how do you, at restitution, how do you guys go after, you know, I think you alluded to this before, but I, and I have some idea, but to take us into a little more depth. How would you go after the bat? Let's say there's, um, you know, there's a new democracy in somewhere, and uh, some dictator absconds with some significant amount of the gross national product of that country in, and, and parks it in Luxembourg or Liechtenstein or Cyprus or wherever. I mean, what would you do? What do you do to get the money back and how do you make sure that it doesn't get stolen again?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I mean, for us really, the, the key is good investigation. So you get, and there, there are some very, very good investigators who are essentially ex-military people, they're ex-intelligence people, ex-cops, And they have a whole network of people that they can then go and speak to. And it's amazing the type of information that they get. And that can be everything from the assets are here or that, you know, this house obviously came from here. Um, There's also big data and AI guys who can just go onto the web and essentially trace where assets have gone. And, you know, it could be houses, apartments, it could be artwork, it could be share certificates or, or even cash. So once you've figured out where, which jurisdictions things are, are sitting in, and you've developed a, essentially a map that says, okay, you know, this license was undersold, these people got paid paid off, there was you know 100 million that got stuck in a bank account somewhere. We found that bank account. Um, we, we've connected it to this asset that was stolen. Then you can do a freezing order in the in a variety of jurisdictions, whether it's the US or the UK or or others or Switzerland, you bring a freezing order, you freeze the assets, you go to the judge and say, you know, this is this is what we've got, you would probably litigate, although sometimes often often people will settle because they they're embarrassed about it or they, or they don't want to fight it. And then what you do is essentially you create a return mechanism and the World Bank and the IMF and others and governments themselves have developed these these mechanisms where it can either go into a fund, where it can be invested in, say, the environment or education or infrastructure or continue to, to become or continue as a litigation funder. So that's the other piece of the puzzle for us is we create... Um, individual funds that could potentially be listed or otherwise located in these countries where um, local investors can then get involved, get get a piece of the action, as it were, and then can continue the work after restitution is done. So there are a variety of ways to make sure that this wealth is really deployed in such a way that has maximum impact. And that's a conversation we have with individual governments, depending upon their prosperity initiatives and agendas. A lot of them were really interested in debt restructuring or debt repayment for obvious reasons. So that that's a relatively easy conversation to have. So in many ways, it's very similar to what other litigation funders do, whether it's in you know, some of the big private equity folks or others, they, they do a very similar type of work. They just do it for the private sector, for high worth individuals. We do it, but we, we do it for a very particular client base, which has been underserved.
0: Yeah. How many people are there? How many people are in the organization?
1: And so we're um, in total, there are seven of us, plus various law firms. So we have law firms, investigators, um, and um, development professionals and others who work for us as well in individual projects. But in terms of the, the, um, the group itself, there are seven of us, litigators, investigators, quants, and, and financial folks. We just think about how how all of these things should be modeled and how to value these claims, um, development professionals and human rights professionals. And that's the other piece for us is that we do quite a bit of work with civil society who are often the most sophisticated in terms of both looking at where these assets are and also understanding corruption. So there are both uh, local civil society people in country who are very very focused on this or international NGOs and we work with those guys as well they're some of our key partners so we have human rights and, and civil society professionals who work with us too it's a very different model from your your typical private equity model
0: yeah seven people it seems like maybe you should have i don't know at least 8 or 9 i don't know i'm just saying
1: i uh, know <laughs> you want to <the> job
0: <laughs> i don't think i'd be very good at this i don't. <laughs> um so tell us about what what's your biggest success story so far give us one give us one like thing that you would say well you know we did this uh great thing brag I want you to blow I want you to blow your own horn a little bit
1: yeah no unfortunately we're, we're under once we we go 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 so we can do that the broad stuff but we're uh, under attorney-client privilege
0: <laughs> oh so you're not but, allowed to brag okay
1: I'm not allowed to brag, except to state um, the fact that that the team between us have brought between two and three billion dollars um, worth of assets back through through our various you know incarnations. So and in terms of that, so we we've had tremendous success at this. A lot of people have been doing this really on almost on a private or individual basis. For quite some time, so this is really just bringing the whole the whole thing together. But we have um, had that that type of success. And the other um, interesting thing for us as well, we will say that we, um, in terms of um, sort of being embraced, particularly by governments, because often, particularly in the global north, people will say, "Well, you know, they're always corrupt, and this is always going to happen." We found it to be the opposite that that governments will embrace us with open arms because they say. This is something we've been struggling with for a while. When we try to do something about it, we get kicked in the teeth, including by advisors who you know where where these guys lawyer up and the, and they hit us really hard. And we're trying to do the right thing. So for the first time, we've actually had somebody on our side who can really, really push this. So we've had the opposite of what. The, so we have naysayers, right? Oh well, it's like you know, it's always going to be this way. We don't think so.
0: Really? Lawyers? There are lawyers who are naysayers. No way. I can't even.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, Could you it's imagine? Incredible. It's incredible <laughs> to believe.
0: I don't, you know, you anytime you, I, I, like I say, I'm not a lawyer at all, but anytime I, I, I float any sort of thing on Twitter that's legal minded about, hey, we should do this or that, legal Twitter is like, no, 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 we can't do that because, and then that's. 75 or 80 percent of, of legal Twitter is just, you know, explaining how something cannot be done because you just can't do that. So good on you for for saying, no, actually, things can be done. And between two and three billion dollars is a lot of fucking money. I just want to you know, I just want to say it's it's you know, that's real money. You know, that's not. Yeah. It's it's, a, it's,
1: yeah but it's the tip of the iceberg, to be oh, honest sure. with you. no The the, yeah. the, the,
0: the dark money, um, you know, if, if if you talk about money that's boosted from foreign governments, money that that um, is is criminal underworld money uh, and money that's just taken out of various countries to avoid taxes and stuff like that is, a, is an astonishing figure. I mean, it, and just it's just basically divorced from uh, utility and paying for things in these governments. And that's why this is so important. You know, we have even in the United States, supposedly a a wealthy and 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 you know, the best country on earth or whatever, you know, we're, we're arguing about uh, ta- the billionaires not, you know, paying just a teeny tiny bit more taxes. And we need we need health care. We need these things that need to be paid for. And uh, all the one of the political parties wants to do is have yet more tax cuts. It's really um, kind of astonishing. I want to ask you about that, too. I want to ask you about what you see in the United States. So you're, you're in London, right? You, you live in London, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Am I yeah, allowed to London, say that? Yeah. Yeah. Am I
0: allowed okay. to disclose? It's to a L- city. <laughs> okay. Um. You, your geolocation is no. Um. You're in London and you've been there for a while. So you look back at the United States and you. What What do you see now? Because it's it. Frankly, where I sit, I, I see. Um, I see Biden doing some good things, and but I I really uh, I see us hanging on by a thread. Is it getting worse here? What, what What's your take?
1: You know, it's it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting one. In many ways, the United States, and, and I'm just thinking out it from the lens of the, the work that I do. So the U.S. and the U.S. enforcement authorities are, are very effective. So the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Department of Justice and others are very effective at what they do. And so part of this is really to say that we we do work with um uh, enforcement authorities as well. That's part of uh, part of our work. I think the concern that we have is that the amount of money sloshing through the, the global system is such that it's going to be difficult to do it just on your own. And I do think the U.S. has done a, a great job uh, at, do, at doing certain things, particularly in the criminal enforcement piece. I know you're saying, well, you know, things aren't, aren't going very, very great, but I do have to say that at least on the enforcement side, we, we think that they're some of the best in the world. The question is, we need other tools to be able to get that on this under control. And I think that will help. That will help globally. It will also help the U.S. in terms of its uh, national priorities, which is to promote democracy worldwide, to um, create more stability, to make sure that, you know, th- even in terms of the environment. So, you know, a lot of the environmental degradation that, that we see is often caused by what you call dark money. So, and corruption money and we've seen this because we have investigators and and AI folks and others who track it for us often this dark money will end up in in bad places whether it's you know paying for you know middlemen to go after you know forests and and cut them down illegally or go after animals and trade them illegally or um, trade guns or or drugs so all of this money when it sloshes through the system becomes it becomes fungible, and it ends up in some really bad places. So we think that this sort of work can help. I, you know, in terms of the U.S. itself, I mean, we, you know, I'm an American. We have our ups and downs. <laughs> don't
0: get me, don't we get me wrong. Do I, we need to do
1: more. We need to do more.
0: It's very encouraging <laughs> to hear you say that about the enforcement, because I think at, at this point, a lot of us are sitting around saying, "What? What's Merrick Garland doing? Is the Department of Is any is any?" Are any consequences going to come from people that tried to overthrow the government? Like what's going on? So it, it's encouraging to hear you say that, yes, the SEC is doing a good job. And yes, some of this enforcement is really, you know, the crackdowns are good because one of the things Trump tried to do, which is something that all dictator types tried to do, which is something that uh, Yahya Jameh, I'm going to keep saying his name wrong, tried to do in the no, Gambia no, is just good. undermining that- the institutions of the country. Um, to the point where people don't have trust in them anymore. You know, if you don't trust the election system and the voting system, that poisons the entire discourse. And it makes half the country think that, you know, the president's illegitimate, and it's just a recipe for disaster. And when these institutions like the SEC that you you brought, if something like that is perceived as being corrupt or something, you know, we're in big trouble. I mean, even bigger trouble than we're in. So I'm very encouraged to, uh, to hear you say that. Was it did Winston Churchill actually say it or was it or is it just apocryphal that, that the, you know, the, the Americans could always be dependent on to do the right thing after they've exhausted all other
1: possibilities? Uh, all other, <laughs> other options. options. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, no, that's a great, it's a great saying. And that's absolutely true. I will, um, one thing I will say, though, and this is something that uh, concerns us as well. So we are, and Uh, we we mentioned this earlier, we are looking at Afghanistan at the moment, and there's a huge amount of outflows of money from Afghanistan. And we were also involved tangentially because we have human rights professionals and others on our board who were involved in pulling out as many people as we could. So human rights folks, and also judges and and sort of senior, senior women who were at risk. And one of the things that we would really like to do. And something that we're looking at very hard is how can we create a structure that would allow some of these illicit financial flows to be put into a trust to help these people? Because we do owe them. And as an Amer- I say that as an American, that we do owe them. We owe them, a, we owe them a debt of gratitude for the fact they sat on the front line for us for so long, and we can't abandon them. So, you know, we talk a bit about the, how the U.S. waxes and wanes on some of this. I, I do feel very strongly about that.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, anybody that was in a position helping us, if they want to come here, we should have them come here and we should put them in red states. Right. That's the best thing to do. Put them in South Dakota and, and then we can take back the Senate and everything will be fine. In a meaningful way, yeah, to, <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, you can work the political angles. I'm just trying to figure out how to. <laughs> I'm I'm, okay.
0: I'm making I'm I'm joking, but no, you're right. I mean, it, it, it is a serious thing for sure, and and I don't want to make light of it or minimize what what you just said because it, you know, people are suffering there, and it's you know that that was a quag that was always going to be a quagmire. It, Afghanistan has been a quagmire for. I don't know, since Alexander the Great's time. I mean, it's always been this way. I mean, it's the site where, you know, great, the British Empire had the worst defeat in its history in Afghanistan. And, you know, the Soviet Union was defeated in large part because it lost in Afghanistan over uh, that extended period of time. And now we, you know, we're having the same issue. So uh, anything that we could do to help the people there, I think, especially the women of Afghanistan, I think is, is welcome and we should, we should do as, as much as we possibly can.
1: Yeah. And we're looking at that very seriously. So obviously for us, hundreds of millions have been taken from that country, at least, I mean, billions probably over years, but over the last couple of months, several months before the fall of Kabul, hundreds of millions did go, did go missing. So what we would really look to do is create a fund, obviously not to go to the Taliban, but look at ways to create a fund to provide support to human rights defenders and others who, who need the support like now now. So, um, yeah, it's something that we're we're quite focused on as well. Restitution. Really, we work with with newly democratic governments, but we do look at things where things I mean, you've you've asked the question when it all goes south, what do you do? So we do we do look at this on a one off basis to try to provide this type of support.
0: I think that's great. It, it's great. Uh, it's now. Are, can people help with this? People that are listening? Is it, it other than just you know being aware of you and, and, and boosting it? What, what can people do to help uh, in this effort?
1: There are a variety of things. So a a lot of the work that we do, some of it at least, is working with civil society organizations and others. So if people are interested in supporting that, we have a a not-for-profit arm. Which essentially will work with, for example, Afghan women, or provide support to judges in in um, in Sudan, just to give an example. So, if people do have an interest in that, definitely let us know because there are ways, either you know, time, effort, or or um, donations, is something that we do. So, that's that is in the context of um, the pure sort of civil society, humanitarian, and human rights work that we do. So if people do have an interest in that, you know, we'd be happy to hear from them. In terms of, of other work, if you're out there and you, you're a lawyer or investigator and you think that there are interesting things that you want to talk about, we'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat um, because there's a lot going on in this space. And we think um, that that there's a lot of potential help that we can provide, but there may be others who want to set up something similar. I mean, there's a massive amount of illicit financial flows, and this is really just the start of of doing this type of work. So we would welcome others as well.
0: So the website is restitution.org.uk, or did I say it back? Is it backwards? Did I get it? No, get that's it. Right? it. Perfect. Okay. I'm gonna yeah. put it on the on the uh, the page for for this episode so people can click on that. Also. You do have a Twitter. It's Resty Impact. So R E S T I, I M P A C T. Right? Did I get it right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you so did. As as I'm typing, as we're talking, you have you have fewer than uh, 100 Twitter followers. So I think the least that people could do, listening to this, is go follow you on the Twitter. Let, let's get you up at least to 105. You know. Thank you. I think <laughs> you're gonna get the bump. You're gonna get the bump and go up at least yeah. to 105. So um, it's restitution. Catherine Mulhern, thank you so much for joining me today. This was fascinating.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for the time. And uh, Greg, hopefully we'll be speaking again. Uh, And yeah, as I said, anybody who wants to to hop on board, let us know. We'd we'd love to have you, including you. Let me know if you want a job.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Opens resume. Okay. (laughs) Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Greg. See you soon.
0: The prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Sophia Tarashenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signetella, Stephanie Saint John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. MSW.